everybody, and welcome to episode 22 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, uh, I'm not a robot. I've been established. <laughs> ben Sherman. Hello, I'm eagerly waiting my arrival of, or not my arrival, the arrival of GTA 5. So I, if, if the doorbell rings, I may run to go get it. All right, James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis, and also not a robot. <laughs> Pete Hodgson. Good morning from Berkeley. I am not a robot. <laughs> Rod Schmidt. <laughs> Hello from Salt Lake. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and... Uh, before I introduce our guest, I just want to make a real quick announcement. This Friday, meaning last Friday when you get this episode, was my freedom day. It was the day I was laid off from my job three years ago and went freelance. And I'm celebrating that by putting up a free video that kind of chronicles my uh, journey through freelancing and going from laid off to actually making enough money to live on. Um, and I'm going to have a lot of lessons that I learned in there and stuff. So if you're interested, you can get that at goingroguevideo.com. Woohoo. Um, Very nice. Congrats. Thanks. We also have a special guest, and that is Steve Madsen. Hello from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, can we get you to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. So uh, I'm, uh, I own uh, Light Your Software, which is a, a small consultancy here in, in Columbus, uh, specializing in uh, Rails and iOS development. And I've been doing that for about seven years now since relocating back from the San Francisco Bay Area. So was it named after the unit of measure or the cartoon character? Unit of measure. Okay. I was looking for something science-y. Awesome. What's the, what's the cartoon character? Toy Story. Buzz Lightyear. Oh, oh yeah. All right. So um, we brought you on to talk about networking. Yeah. Yes. That's a big topic. I was going to say... That's kind of a broad topic. What what in particular is interesting about networking with iOS or Cocoa? Uh, well, specifically about iOS, obviously, uh, you know, we're talking about mobile devices, and I th- I think it's safe to say that since uh, since mobile devices became as popular as they did with the uh, the introduction of the iPhone, you know, the the possibilities now for us to build apps that communicate back to servers or communicate with people that are nearby uh, have have gone up. A lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Does does it change much if you're talking over cellular data versus Wi-Fi, or do you, most of your apps just not care? I don't think most apps care. Um, from an app developer's point of view, you know the APIs are exactly the same. Uh, you have to do some work to actually find out if you're on Wi-Fi or cellular, and then, of course, there's <clears throat> there's all kinds of issues about you know do you even want to know because. Google and other places or even airplanes are famous for having Wi-Fi on their transportation, but, you know, the link back to the actual Internet behind that Wi-Fi is is either a satellite connection or cellular. So, you know, if you make assumptions about what you can do with the network based on the fact that your your iPhone thinks it's on Wi-Fi, you, you may find that <laughs> the, the reality of the situation is extremely different. Yeah, same thing with MiFi's, right? Like those little pocket Wi-Fi things. If you've got an iPad that doesn't have cellular then you might be using that most of the time but you're not you're still on the cellular network it just looks like it's a fast network until you yeah I, I think some, a lot of us have been at conferences where you have wi-fi and uh, i use uh, backblaze to back up my mac and uh i was at CocoConf recently and realized that it was trying to back up like 18 gigs of <laughs> stuff uh, on the conference wi-fi and it was uh, a little uh, a little uh 
disappointing, but you know, you have to turn that stuff off. But yeah, I mean, how does it, how, how are you really going to know what type of connection that you're going to get? Yeah, you can't. Uh, if, if your, if your use case really does depend upon something to do with the network and in terms of, uh, you know, it's, it's latency or it's bandwidth, you're much better off to try and measure those things within the app and then make decisions based on, on what you measure as opposed to assumptions about, you know, what you think you have based on a connection type. I guess there's different kinds of performance characteristics as well, right? Because there's, there's the raw bandwidth, but then there's also uh, latency and stuff like that. So even if you've, even if you, it seems like you're, you're getting a really good connection, it might be very bursty where it's, it's, you get like a chunk, chunks and chunks of data and then nothing comes through for a while and then you get chunks and chunks of data. So I think even, even doing something like measuring bandwidth or measuring latency is actually quite, there's some subtlety to that beyond just like what's my what's you know going to speedtest.com or whatever and seeing what the little the little dial tells you exactly um, and actually you know it's something you'd have to measure sort of ongoing not something you could do once and then just forget about it and assume that that nothing changes you know the network is a really interesting thing for for us to develop against because you know you can never make any assumptions about it things things are constantly changing and and Unlike a lot of other things where you know you can test and you can test and you can test and you can be relatively sure that things work, you know the network will always bite you <laughs> things will things will always fail in in weird and unpredictable ways uh, HTTP live streaming that that Apple does for all of its uh, its video and stuff actually does more or less what I'm talking about um, you know the publisher on the server side actually publishes multiple streams at varying bit rates and at runtime when you're playing a video. Uh, the frameworks will actually switch to a lower or a higher bandwidth uh, stream depending upon the conditions that it's observing and whether or not it's able to keep up or whether it's losing packets and falling behind. Um, so it, it kind of does exactly that. So are there I wonder any libraries if, that help you do this sort of thing? Uh, I'm not aware of any off the top of my head. Do you mean specifically like consuming uh, HTTP live streaming? Uh, not live streaming, Bob. You're talking about... Most a lot, a lot of us just do kind of are we on Wi-Fi or cellular, but mm-hmm. actually checking your bandwidth, your latency, if you're dropping packets, and kind of adjusting your app accordingly. Are there any kind of toolkits that help you with this, or what APIs are actually using to figure this stuff out? I wonder if there's private API. Um, the, I wonder with the HTTP live streaming whether it's a private API that that Apple has access to that we don't, or whether it's something, or whether they're just doing. The same stuff that we could do if if we uh, took the time to do it. I I think they're using the same like they're just t- starting at a much lower level, like you know measuring the packet loss and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, specifically for HTTP live streaming, you can inspect the it like keeps a log, and you can use that log for introspection to see like what type of rate you were getting uh, specifically for an HTTP live stream. So I mean it's interesting, but it's not going to help you out if you're just dealing with like a general API. I mean, I work on a streaming radio app, and we have to determine whether or not to send high-quality content, and we're not yet using HTTP live streaming, so right now we make that determination on whether or not you're on Wi-Fi, which is you know, sometimes a mistake, depending on how good your connection is. Well, it sounds like the best solution there is to be streaming a, a video of a cat doing a funny dance in the background. <laughs> <laughs> and then you watch the log, and then if the log says you've got bad network, then you stop yes. streaming the video of the cat. Yeah, and then you just you, know, you, you can show it to them as an Easter egg. <laughs> All joking aside, though, how do you figure out what kind of quality bandwidth you have? Is it something like that where you're 
requesting something that requires a fair bit of bandwidth and then seeing how much it stutters or if I were building a video app and for some reason you couldn't use HTTP live streaming, well, first of all, you'd probably get rejected from the app store, but <laughs> that aside, yeah, I, I think you just watch, you'd watch how much data you're getting back as, as your requests are made. And, you know, if you ask for what you expect to be about maybe say 10 seconds worth of, worth of data and you can buffer that in five, then you should be able to assume that you've got a pretty good connection and maybe move up to a higher quality bitstream or stay where you are. That makes sense. I kind of feel like the the most robust way of doing this is is to follow that same principle of like don't check Wi-Fi to see if you've got a good connection because really you don't care whether you're on Wi-Fi or not you care about the quality of the connection and I'd, I'd almost argue it's the same with the latency and the the bandwidth stuff don't explicitly measure that but look at how much whether you're able to keep up with the amount of data you need and if you're not then adapt a bit rate or whatever for for, for the video example but trying to kind of second trying to develop some super sophisticated heuristic seems seems pointless when you can actually just find out whether you're keeping up or not by seeing if you're keeping up or not, you know? Like look exactly. at the end result. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and there's no there's no like scaling down quality of like a full JSON response, right? So this only matters for media in which you have multiple multiple encodings. Uh, so that you can you can adapt. But if you're just like consuming an API, you still need all that data, so it doesn't necessarily matter. But you might choose that, you know, you might record failures or something so that you know, like maybe you just treat it as offline if all these requests are failing. I think that's the, the when it gets to the, I guess maybe this is off on a slightly different tangent, but from a user experience point of view, what I would really like to do is is be able to fail fast if I know that I'm, I've got a network connection that's not really going to work. So the thing that's really frustrating for me as a consumer, as a user of applications is when um, when I'm on um, public transit or something and I've got a really spotty cellular connection and I go to load something and it doesn't say, you know, you don't have a network. It just sits there and doesn't do anything. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think this is really a solvable problem, but really what I want my apps to do is to tell me when I don't have a network connection so I don't sit there staring at this kind of bar that's like perpetually at 20% across the, across the screen. Yeah, that's particularly problematic with Verizon in an elevator. Uh, I'm on Verizon and it works in my house, yay. And so that's why I am uh, am on Verizon. But in my elevator, I have two elevator rides when I go to work and uh, it just doesn't work at all. So I, I've i just gotten used to not even opening it. And one of the problems it has is recovering from being inside of an elevator. It takes a long time to like switch back to like an active cell, cell tower. Uh, so I can see that requests are going to fail. It's just one of those things you learn to avoid. But yeah, I mean, it would be nice if I could just be like, okay, cancel everything you're doing and I will start it again later. Are you saying you have, you have a connection, but it's really slow? Or yeah, you just have no I have connection? like two bars and it drops from LTE to 3G and then sometimes from 3G down to like GPRS or something. Uh, whatever the, um, I, on the iPhone, I mean on iOS 7, it, it says 1X. I don't know what that means, but I'm guessing that's GPRS. And it just never finishes anything. And it takes about probably almost a full minute after I get out of the elevator to reestablish a good connection. It's kind of like the opposite of a denial of service attack. You're kind of, <laughs> the, ser- <laughs> the servers are doing a denial. Of, they're like kind of slow rolling you, you know, where they're like, oh yeah, here's a bit. Yeah. Hang a sec. I've got, I've got the other one right here somewhere. Let me just look around. Yep. Here's another bit. <laughs> it's a denial of service because your service is denied. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the one X is actually carrier pigeon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it does it does help like, you know, working on a streaming radio app, it it helps me test scenarios like that. But you know, we rely heavily on the network link conditioner as well. And and you know, once you've solved this problem, like where it's good enough in most cases, you don't necessarily have to continue testing it, but network link conditioner on iOS is is uh, super, super handy. Just remember to turn it off when you're done. <laughs> I think we talked briefly about that in another episode, but we should probably, since this is an episode about networking, we should probably talk about that in more detail because it is a super useful tool. Yeah. But yeah, I've not it used is. it. I, you know, it used to work for me. Um, I have Xcode 5GM on my main machine now, and, and I, I sat down to do something with the network link conditioner last night, and and it turns out that it, it seems like there needs to be a very uh, specific matchup between your tools and the pref pane, and and I don't have that right now, and so it, it just utterly does not work. So be forewarned. If it works for you, don't touch anything. And how do so I? How would I even use this this network link conditioner thing? Where is it, and, and what do I do with it? Uh, well, it's in two places actually. It, it started life on on the the Mac uh, as part of the Xcode tools, and I think they, I don't know if it came with the Xcode bundle originally, but it's in what they call the hardware I/O tools now, which is a separate download. Uh, and you just install it. It's a pref pane that shows up in System Preferences, and then you can go in and turn it on or off. And when you turn it on, you can pick a profile that dictates the downlink and the uplink bandwidth, as well as um, the latency of packets. And you can even have a, a drop rate, so you can make a link lossy to see what would happen if, if you were on, like, say, a bad cellular connection where, you know, one or two percent of packets just never arrived. And when it works, it, it works perfectly well. It, it, it gates all traffic in and out of your Mac, though. So, again, if you, if you have it on and then you, <laughs> then you forget about it and you go into Safari and you wonder why everything is taking forever to load, it's, it's probably because you forgot. And then I don't remember if it was iOS 5 or iOS 6, but Apple actually bundled the link, the network link conditioner into iOS as well. So now it's, it's buried under the, I don't even remember which. Does anybody remember which, which uh, menu it is under settings? I think you have to enable yeah. your phone for development and then there's a develop menu somewhere in there. Yeah. And so you get all the same options there, but then for traffic in or out of your device, which is really great. Yeah. It's, it's under developer so that you get a developer um, section of system preferences if you've turned on developer mode and. That's the network link conditioner is one of the things in there. And I think on, on OSX, it's, it's actually, it's like it, the, the network link conditioner is just a GUI in front of the IP tables or, or whatever the, the free BSD or the BSD equivalent of IP tables is where it, it's just messing with your firewall that's built into the Mac, basically. I, so. I thought that last night and I'm not so sure anymore. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, when I started getting the errors and it, it wasn't working for me, I dug into console and then dug into the pref pane bundle itself. And they're actually using XPC services in there. So there's mm. like a helper application that runs. I don't know what they're doing, <laughs> but it's not a simple <laughs> wrapper around PF or or whatever the, the packet filter that OS X uses now. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, my, my information is out of date. So what libraries do you guys use for networking? One thing that uh, might come in handy for those situations we were talking about is the reachability CocoaPod that you can use that'll tell you if you have a connection or not. So then if you don't have a connection, you can display a UI and that says, I, I don't have a network connection. I'm not sure if that's that'll work with a really slow connect connection, though. Probably not. I don't think so. Uh, 
I'm relatively sure that reachability basically just monitors the routing table. So it's it's not a I can reach the server, but it, it's an I should be able to based on the routes. Mm-hmm. I would confirm that. So reachability won't tell you if you have a network connection that's just not working. It, it will only tell you if the phone truly thinks you don't have connection. Do you guys have like a good strategy for managing reachability in your app? Because you know a lot of times you'll say, like, like push this button and I'm going to like go execute some network request, or maybe unviewed load. I'm going to load some data for the screen, and you want to check at that moment: Do I have a network connection? But reachability is an asynchronous call, so uh, you can get a callback if reachability changed, but that's not guaranteed to ever change, right? So like as soon as you initialize the reachability API you're not necessarily guaranteed to have a realistic answer whether or not you have network, correct? So one of the things that I've done is just keep like a global reachability monitor uh, in the app and just consult that. That way at app startup, I I maintain the state of reachability callbacks. Is that something that you guys do or is there a different way you handle that? That's Typically. the same approach I've taken. So, But I don't have anything to add to it, but that's what I've done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. I do the same thing. What do you do in the case where you're, uh, you know, you you do a reachability test or whatever, you you verify that your server's there and it can connect, and then um, mid response it goes away. So you only got half of the response, and you don't really know if it's going to come back or not. Well, in that case, you will get the failure callback in reachability, so you can mark your own flag as I'm offline now, and then the request that's in flight will fail. So your failure callback handler will will happen, and you'll probably present alert saying. Sorry, this connection failed. Try again later. Or if you're, you know, if if network connection sort of gets interrupted in the middle and then comes back, by the time the failure callback happens, you should probably check if you have network connection again so that you can automatically retry the request. Because there are times like me stepping in an elevator where uh, I might have the internet interrupted for a minute, but then it will come back on its own. And one of the pieces of advice that uh, I got from WWDC session, oh, I don't remember which one it was. It was one on networking, and uh, the, the Apple engineer was saying, you know, if somebody's sitting there staring at a screen, like, go ahead and retry the request. Uh, you don't necessarily have to, like, present an alert every time a connection fails because people realize that they fail. They realize that they're in a tunnel or an elevator or whatever. What if it doesn't go all the way away but just slows down to the point where it's pretty much useless? So you're still getting packets in, does that trigger the reachability, or does that um, does it keep? Yeah, know, I mean, at that point, bandwidth. I th- I'm guessing is reachability just like a DNS query or a ping or whatever. I think if you can reach it, reachability is going to say you can reach it, and it'll tell you on which radio you can reach it. So, like reachable via Wi-Fi or cellular, right? But I right. don't. It's not going to give you any indication of speed, right? Um, I think it's important to like if you're sitting there staring at a screen and you're waiting for the screen to load content, like if you hit the back button to like cancel current requests uh, so that they're no longer, the user's no longer interested in in whatever data that was. So we should stop spending any system resources trying to go get it. Yep, that seems like like a wise advice. Uh, you know, and specifically to reach really, I'm not sure that any packets actually go out on the network when you when you configure reachability. Like I think it's I think it's all based on the routing table. So when you get a cellular connection, you know, iOS at a very low level will add a route that knows how to get to the internet through that that cellular connection. 
And so reachability is very much a theoretical, like, you know, I, I believe I have a route in, that I can use to reach, you know, a given host, or I don't. But there's no guarantee that the server's up, or if there's something along the way that would that would keep the packets from getting where they need to go. So it's it's very much sort of a pre-flight check, but there's there's no guarantee it's going to succeed. So I mean, if if bytes are dribbling in over an extremely slow connection, then reachability should should still tell you that you have a connection because you do. Um, the question of whether or not it's it's fast enough for you know the purposes that you have is is really. I guess ultimately it's up to your user. Yeah. And, you know, the user can tell whether or not they're getting a good, a good connection because the spinner, the network spinner at the top will actually slow down depending on whether or not you're getting a fast connection or a slow connection. Do you ever just give them like a blatant button that says, you know, you know, if, if it takes too long to load, it's like, do you want to keep waiting or do you want to move on? Or do you just do that for them and intelligently decide to try again and let them know that it's, not working. I think it depends on your app. Uh, there was another, I think it's probably the same WWDC session from a couple years ago that um, the advice they gave at the time, which I think is really sound advice, is you don't know the situation that your user is in. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they could be in a, an elevator, they could be coming out of a tunnel. I mean, there's, there's, you just don't know the situation they're in. And so, really, if you can give your user the choice to either continue to let a, a connection proceed or, or attempt to proceed or to cancel it or to retry, like being able to make those decisions in your app, you never really know what your user wants. And so giving them the control to retry and cancel is often the best choice because only they know the situation that they're in. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you just assume this screen should load within so many seconds or milliseconds and then give them a button that says move on or how do you usually handle that? I think it depends on the app. A lot of the apps I've done lately, the, the networking tends to be sort of a background thing. So, you know, the user isn't explicitly telling it to go do stuff. You know, it tends to be more like data is getting created and it's getting stuffed into a, you know, a core data store or a database okay. somewhere. And then, and then later on when time permits and, and the, the network is up and available, I'll try to sync that up to a server somewhere. But yeah, if, if, uh, if it's something else, like say, I don't know, a, a news feed in an app or something. Yeah. So some way to, you know, pull to refresh, maybe like in, in Twitter clients or, or a button somewhere that lets you cancel is, you know, it just really depends on the app. I think that's a that's a really good point. Like I've I I can't remember who this isn't me being smart. It's me listening to someone else being smart. But someone was saying that you should really change the way your your UI your the UX is based on whether it's an intentional action or a or a kind of a, a background thing. Like if you're loading it in the background. And, and there's a bad connection. You don't want to suddenly say to the user while they're in the middle of doing something else, "Hey, the network's down." It's like I don't care right now, thank you. But if the user has explicitly done a pull to refresh, then you want to show that you're doing some loading, and you want to tell them that their explicit action has failed. Amen. Yep. Yeah, you don't want to be I, reading like halfway through an article and say your network's down. Like I don't care right now. You that's know? my pet, absolute most irritating thing about my iPhone is when I'm halfway through. I'm like using the iPhone and I'm scrolling through something and the freaking Wi-Fi notification comes up and says, there's 17 locked private Wi-Fi networks near you. Would you like to try and join one? And I accidentally <laughs> tap on one. And then yeah, I tap on one and it's off. like, yeah. Yeah, that's like the first thing I turn off. I don't know why. I, I'm going to turn it off right now. <laughs> that happened to be driving through a neighborhood once. I'm like, what? It happens to me That'll all be useful the time for about four seconds. Here. It is, you know what though, it is useful for finding out what, um, 
what uh, startup buses are nearby. When I, the Google bus always shows up on my Wi-Fi as the G bus. It's always fun. So maybe I will turn it off. Looking at the oh, Wi-Fi list in my neighborhood and trying to figure out which neighbor is which Wi-Fi. Yeah, there's some. There are some terrible Wi-Fi networks around here, like names that are horrible. My, yeah. yeah, my favorites are Linksys and Netgear. <laughs> I love those Wi-Fi well, networks. Yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I know the kind that you're talking about. There's some of those near my my house too. <laughs> Me and my kid are going to have to have a conversation as soon as he gets his first iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are some of the gotchas with networking that you guys run into? We've talked about some of the connection issues. Are there are there other gotchas that that people mess up? Oh I yeah. Think- I think uh, I was talking about canceling requests. I think this is one of the reasons why I really like AF networking because it's built upon NS operations and NS operations can be inherently canceled. So if you're just using like an uh, NS URL connection and use one of the block-based ones, there's no canceling that request as far as I know. Um, and I'd say another anti-pattern is probably any use whatsoever of NS string, string with contents of URL. What do you guys think? Yeah. Any other contents with URL. Yeah, yeah anything that, that thing should die in a fire. Well, I think the first there's a bunch of them, I, too. I think the very first day I started trying to write Coco, um, I, I, was, I wanted to pull some data from the web, and I, I used that NS string. A string with contents of URL, and I was just amazed at how easy it was. I know, it's so easy and so tempting <laughs> to use it. But every time <laughs> so I see it, I'm like, there's just literally no no good use case for it. Right. And people will be like, well, I'm just going to like dispatch async and then do it. But you have no failure callback, you have no progress, you have no cancel. Like, I, I really can't think of a single use other than it's easier. Yeah, well, and even then, you've got that queue tied up waiting for your synchronous request for no reason, so... Right, an NSURL connection has synchronous request support anyway, so if you really, truly want to do a synchronous request, you've got send synchronous request. Async, I think if, if it was literally like you have to only do this once, then you should probably look into like the GCD barrier, what do they call barrier blocks, so that you can still have async, but nothing else runs during that time. Uh, yeah, I haven't. I haven't personally had a need for that, but uh, I don't know. There's, you know, the GCD WWDC video talks about barrier blocks, and and uh, that seems like it would be a better use case. So you're not tying up a a queue for any period of time. Right, and if you're if you're using AF networking or some other uh, NS operation based system, you can set up dependencies between blocks that way too. So or between operations. I don't. Maybe this is a topic for a future show, but the whole NS operation dependency stuff i've never found a use for that do you guys use oh. that a lot or uh yes I've, I've used it occasionally so one one of the things i would say i'm trying to think of a good example we can maybe describe the scenario but like once this thing is done then i want to do this other thing so uh, like one thing we do in delhi radio is like if you use star uh band and you're not logged in then we prompt you to log in or sign up but we carry along a block of what to do when that signup is finished so that we can star it once you have signed in. And I think that that might be a good use, but we just retain the block, uh, pass that along with the operation, and if that block is present afterwards, we execute it. So I'm 
wondering what are maybe some benefits of doing the dependent operations. Is that uh, one, one, a good scenario one, where I should have looked at using a, a dependency? Well, it seems like what you just described sounds reasonable to me, but one place I've used it is we have uh, a bunch of concurrent operations that are quite CPU intensive and also have a network request component. So they do a bunch of work on the, on the CPU that takes a long time. And then they, uh, take that data and do a network request and get some, some data back and then, and then they're done. And, and then, and data that they get back goes into a core data database. And we want to save as soon as they're all done or as soon as a certain number of them are done, you know, periodically. And so we set up a, an operation to save the, the, the core data store. Um, as a dependency of those operations. So, but the sense? output, so like the input of one of those jobs depends on the output of the second job or, or the first job, right? So like once you've like downloaded the file, then you want to process the file and then you want to save it or something like that. Sure. Well, why, then, why wouldn't one operation just throw a, like a callback, like a delegate callback, and then whoever's handling that would then queue up uh, the second operation? Because it seems like if one of them is dependent on the data from the first then queuing it up, you'd be queuing up an operation that can't run because you don't have the data. I'm wondering how you even create it. Oh, well, so I'm, I'm actually, I'm not, the, the operations I'm talking about do that entire thing in a single operation, a single NS operation. They do the, you know, local processing network request, get the data back from the server, put that in core data. The only thing I was saying we make dependent is the, um, the calling save on the managed object context. Oh, okay. Um, and we sort of coalesce those. It's, so they're it's, already kind of decoupled. Okay. Right. Yep. Okay. All right. Sorry for that little diatribe on NS operations. Well, so I, I actually wanted to hear Steve uh, Stephen talk a little bit about AF networking and, and if there are any other libraries. I think somebody asked this question, but it didn't really get answered other than reachability. But do you use AF networking or other uh, third-party networking libraries? If so, you know, what are the advantages if not? Why not? Um, I do use AF networking. Um, at this point, I think it's pretty much the undisputed king of the hill in terms of, of third-party open source uh, networking libraries. Um, I still use NSURL connection directly for pretty simple things. Like if I only need to fetch, like say, one or two URLs to grab some data at app start, um, I typically won't reach for AF networking for that just because the needs are so simple. But if I'm integrating with an API or anything on the back end that that I need to do, you know, more stuff with than AF networking is is just the obvious choice. Uh, it's so well supported at this point. It's so well tested that you know it's it's another one of those things where if if I can use a chunk of somebody else's code and have a very high uh, confidence that it it works and it does what it says it does, then that's one less thing I have to think about. Do you use any other other libraries that kind of build on build on AF networking, like a REST kit or something like that? Um, I don't. Uh, I haven't. I, so I looked at RestKit once a while back, and, and I forget why, but uh, it, it didn't seem particularly appropriate for my needs at the time. And a lot of times I'm just consuming, I mean, sending in and consuming JSON data. And I've, I've in the past, I've written a couple categories on, let's say, NS Managed Object that will, you know, take care of serializing, you know, attributes from a core data object into something for JSON and then back. Uh, and that's, that's done the job pretty well, but I know there's there's a uh, there's rest kit, and then there was something I can't I can't remember what it was, but there was something objective resource maybe I want to say there was something a few years ago that that would integrate 
with a Rails backend specifically, so it followed all the same naming conventions and, and would sort of just make everything magically hook up with very, very little effort. But uh, but I haven't used any of that stuff myself recently. Yeah, I, I spent a little bit of time learning ResKit, and I did uh, three NS Screencast episodes on it. And at the end of it all, I kind of appreciated some of the little pieces involved, but the what is required to to take advantage of those is really confusing. And going back over that code, it, it's no longer obvious why certain things were done. So I don't know. Like I think there are pieces you certainly could learn from. I think the mapping is really, really powerful. So you can like flatten hierarchies of JSON into like a differently shaped uh, NS manage object. But yeah, I, I probably won't ever use it in a shipping app. Yeah, I found it uh, documentation kind of poor. Very powerful once you understand it, but easy to forget. Yeah, what the it's one of the do. largest entry points into NS Screencast is in terms of searches because there's no documentation. And so there's like a Stack Overflow question. They're like, anybody using ResKit too? And like tons of traffic come into that episode because I'm apparently the only resource of ResKit too. And I had to figure all, all that crap myself. <laughs> which was uh, frustrating without any documentation. So, like, a lot of people email me asking questions about ResKit. I'm like, I am not at all an expert. I just, you know, figured out enough to cover the topic. And so, anyway, it's it's interesting that uh, it's it's kind of a useful idea, but in practice, I think it it uh, is is too complex. Yeah, and they and they completely changed the API before version two. So most of the stuff you see on Stack Overflow is not quite up to date and almost useless. That is frustrating. Yeah, but if the API gets better, then I guess you can argue whether or not the trade-off is worth it. Yeah, I mean, I used it heavily on my last project, and, you know, it was very powerful. Once you kind of get the quirks, I mean, I could wire up a new a new endpoint in like 20 minutes, and it's ready to go, and I've got my JSON objects, and I can go. So in that case, once you kind of figure it out, it worked pretty well. So do you guys do much uh, logging of network requests and response or only in the context of having to debug something? Oh, I constantly. Um, yeah, it's uh, one of the things about networking that, that, that makes debugging such a frustrating experience at times is that, you know, uh, we test things in our desktops and in our Wi-Fis and our offices and, and then we get out into the real world and things are very different and it's not even a series of steps. If, if a user in the field has a beta version of their app or even a production version and they say, well, I did this, this, and this, and you can do that and it works just fine. And it's because where they were, their network was a little wonky and, you know, a request failed and we didn't handle it properly. And that's why they're having problems. So I've, I've found that, that logging is, is critical to debugging those kinds of, kinds of issues. Yeah, but you probably shouldn't ship with your NS logs visible because anybody could just plug in their phone and see request and response. And not that it's really difficult to to get at if for like a determined indiv- individual, but certainly don't want to make things that uh, blatant blatantly obvious of how your API is talking to the server yep, or how that's the phone true. is talking to the server. So I, I usually yeah. conditionally compile those out and release builds. Yep, I do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, for for depending on the app. I mean, if it's a mass market app and you're talking about hundreds of thousands of downloads, then then obviously your end user support gets trickier. Um, but if you're building an app for a business customer and you know you can shift somebody from an app store version to an ad hoc version, then you can instrument the build and and get yeah. a lot more information out of it. Have you guys looked at uh, RunScope at all? Because you can uh, you can basically it's a complete pass through proxy of your own API, 
it will forward all headers and whatever else uh, params to to the real API, but log and provide instrumentation metrics and whatever, so that you can uh, you can see what's going on out in the field. Uh, so that kind of gives you that that same approach. You can inspect requests and responses. Uh, but what was that called? It's called RunScope. So if you had an API, kind of like um, I don't know, myapi.com, then you would be myapi.com.runscope.com. And uh, it's complete passer. Yeah, it's really pretty cool technology. There goes one of my picks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good at this game. Yeah. <laughs> would you use RunScope in in kind of in production, the shipping app? Though it I, seems like no, I w- definitely not. I mean, I I like the idea, and I would love to see the data, but you're completely dependent upon their uptime. Right. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I I've, I've chosen dependencies like. AWS, for instance, or Heroku, and they go down and whatever, but those are kind of conscious decisions that I make. And the more of those types of, um, like, kind of massive dependencies you have on uptime, I mean, what if your app became as popular as Angry Birds? All of a sudden, they have to have the scaling uh, yeah. to, to oh, support that. And I don't know, they probably would, I, I don't know what their pricing model is like, but they probably want you to not run it in production. Yeah, because I mean, they're paying for all the bandwidth, right? Yeah. And maybe Twice. they. Yeah, maybe they just uh, charge you enough to support that, but I don't know. I mean, they're, I know uh, one of the founders, and he's a really smart guy, and I'm sure they're up to the task of scaling it, but I don't know. You want to be in control of your own destiny, so I think for a, for an ad hoc build, definitely, but not for a shipping app. Yeah, there's some privacy, I, privacy concerns there, too. You wouldn't want to route all, all your API calls and responses through somebody else if, if you didn't have to. Right. I'm I'm guessing they've got to have some sort of way of saying, well, this type of parameter I don't want you to log. Like uh, like Rails, for instance, uh, automatically filters out fields that are called password uh, because you don't want that stuff to be logged. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm guessing they have something similar to that so that you don't log secrets. What is your social security number? <laughs> what is your bank account number? What is your mother's maiden name? Be back in a minute. Oh, I don't you know, need I've always, all of your you know this, I just uh, need the last four digits. That's, that's <laughs> you know that uh, that practice of like banks saying, "Okay, what's your username?" Okay, now let me show you an image that you picked along with a phrase. I have no idea why they think that's secure. That bugs the crap out of me because if I were <laughs> to like, if I were to be the spammer, I would just set up a page that looks just like it. You would say, "Type in your username," and I'd be like, "Okay, hey, well, hang on one second, and let me go to that page, log in as you." I don't know. Download the image, yeah. Yeah, it bugs me. It's just like you you could just prov- anyway. Yeah, it's like secret questions. They're not they're not really very secure. Yeah, most of them are public info anyway. Right. And you can socially engineer your way into the rest of them. So Steve, for for a long time, most of what we talk about networking is like, you know, streaming media or it's you know, getting data over HTTP, you know, either with XML or JSON. But like when I started doing like heavy data stuff, you know, we were doing more lower level sockets, TCP, UDP, that kind of thing. Is there any use for kind of the different uh, networking technologies in for kind of today's app developers? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you know, most of what we do, we are talking about talking to web services, and so HTTP works just fine for that. But uh, you know, if if you were to sit down and write, a, you know, a multiplayer game or build another mail client or something like that, then then none of the NSURL connection stuff or AF networking helps you at all, uh, because they're they're designed to talk to web servers. 
So uh, Apple's given us, we actually still have access to the raw Berkeley sockets, um, you know, through foundation and, and, and uh, uh, foundation networking. So we've got uh, NS stream and then there's a CF stream counterpart um, and there's CF sockets. I mean, we can still do all that stuff uh, if we need to. It's, it's not nearly as nice as, you know, NS URL connection is. I mean, there's, you still have to push and pull all the bytes yourself and, with the low level stuff, you, you know, if you tell it write a thousand bytes, it may come back and say, well, I'm done, but I only wrote 500. So you have to buffer the rest yourself. So it's, it's not nearly as user friendly, but, but they definitely give us the, the ability to still get down to that level if we need to. And then actually GameKit, uh, introduced some peer to peer networking stuff that if you're just talking about devices in close proximity, um, there's a, there's a whole API that, lets you discover other devices that are running your same app and you can get them to join a session and then you can send data packets back and forth uh, among the peers. And it's really easy to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think in iOS 7 now, we're basically getting that but rebranded under this multi-peer connectivity. Uh, so it seems like it's mostly the same API with some new additions, but uh, the same sort of, you know, I want to be able to discover and talk to uh, nearby peers without actually having to dip down to the socket level. Uh, and I used that a couple years ago to do some rudimentary syncing uh, in an iOS app, and it was it was great. It it made that that job uh, fantastically easy compared to to doing the raw sockets uh, myself. Do you know what protocol it uses under the hood? Uh, I believe it uses either TCP or UDP, depending on whether or not you tell it that you want a reliable transmission or not. Okay. Has anyone used web sockets, or is that kind of the same thing? WebSockets is not the same. It's WebSockets is like trendy people rediscovering UDP. <laughs> well, not not quite, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm being a little bit sorry. That was like instantly triggered my annoyance at, at WebSockets. WebSockets don't scale just like Rails. <laughs> That's right. We need MongoDB WebSockets. I actually yeah, web am using WebSockets uh, in a production app right now, and it. It, it's working pretty well for the use case. So, so what's that's, that's that's good. What's the what's the use case? Maybe maybe I can have someone that's actually used them uh, tell me tell me why I'm being irrational. Well, so the the use case that we're using it for is um, we have a we have an app that that communicates to a backend and um, data can change on that backend in lots of different ways, not just through a single instance of the app. And so you want to be able to get that data up to date on, on the app, but I didn't want to have to build the app to constantly be polling because the, the load on the server would scale up pretty fast as the app got popular. Uh, and so WebSockets, and I'm actually using something called Fay on the back end, um, WebSockets allows the app to, to make a single connection to the server that just stays open forever. And then as the server gets new data coming in from other sources, it can it can sort of push that data down to the client through that WebSocket connection and keep the client up to date. So I can have a piece of data change on the server and the, it shows up in the app like within a second. I mean, it's, it's really is, great. This is a, presumably this is a web app, not a native app. No, it's a native, it's a native iPad app, but then there oh. are other ways to inject data into the back end that there's a web component, there's uh, iPhone and Android components. Um, so data can feed in in a lot of different ways. Okay, interesting. I've not heard of anyone using WebSockets on a on a native, uh, you know, on on with a na- with with a non web browser client. I think there are some libraries that that do implement WebSockets for iOS. I can't remember what they are. 
Are they socket level or are you using some kind of HTTP to do that? So WebSockets is technically... H- is it technically HTTP or is it not HTTP? That's it's, confusing to me. It's initiated over HTTP and then I believe they... It uses some uh, some sort of it's like kind of a more esoteric part of the HTTP spec where you can tell the connection to shift into a slightly different mode, so they they kind of shift it from HTTP into something else. Um, at the level I'm using it at, I'm just I'm just trading. Uh, actually, I think I'm just jamming JSON down the pipe from the server to the client. Technically, it's bi-directional. Um, yeah. So you know, we could so do that, more that that use right case now. of that use case of wanting to have a you know, a, a connection open so that you can instantly update all of your clients when something changes makes sense to me. Uh, the, the thing that doesn't make sense to me quite so much is having a, a connection open to every single client. Seems like, A, that means you're going to run out of connections pretty soon if you're using Ruby. Uh, and, and B, what's that do to the battery life of the, of the client? Yeah, so th- this particular application, it's, it's designed that the iPad would be sitting... Uh, in one place for the most part. So okay. the, the theory is that it should be plugged in um, because the app is designed to be used for, you know, six plus hours at a time. Okay, so that, that makes that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Socket think, Rocket is the Objective-C library for WebSockets. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's another thing called FayobC that um, uh, it, it didn't use Socket Rocket ori- originally, but the, the thing it did use, it, it sort of... a not been maintained, and so I forked it, and I'm using Socket Rocket now on my fork, and it's great. It's it just works fabulously well. Uh, I think we've had it in production for like a year, year and a half now, and I've never we haven't had a single problem with that component. Cool. Looks like that one's written by Square. So, uh, any other questions or comments or bits of wisdom you want to share about this before we get into the picks? Well, I guess the only thing I wanted to mention is the there's a there's an interesting list of the fallacies of distributed computing that that I always talk about and uh, when I do this I do a networking talk for CocoConf and it's something that was I think originally drafted up by somebody at Sun I believe but I'm not sure about that uh, and it's just it's it's an interesting read of like all the things you may assume going into building a distributed system and you know really are apps that talk to web services and it's well I'll send the link out and and uh, it's it's an interesting read to go through and just really to fundamentally understand like how evil and how dangerous the networking uh, the network environment is when 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 we sit down to use it. Awesome. Are you going to be speaking at any Coco Confs coming up? I am. Uh, we have another Coco Conf here in Columbus in uh, what a week and a half, and I think this will be the third one. Coco Conf, I believe, are originally started here in Columbus, and they've they've come back the last two falls, and and so we've got another one coming up. And I'm really pleased that that Apple. Listen to my 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 pleas to release iOS seven so that I could talk about some new stuff this year. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks then. Andrew, why don't you start us off this week? Sure. Uh, so I have two picks, and the first is uh, um, it's kind of an article. It's really a summary of some other people's stuff by Michael. I don't know how you say his name. Sai about possible performance implications of using Arc, which I, th- I just thought was interesting because I think um, the line from Apple and, and the general wisdom has been that Arc, for, uh, among its many other benefits, can produce performance improvements, and this is sort of a counterpoint to that. So it's just an article called Arc versus uh, MRC Performance, 
And I think anyone who, even the people who are bringing this up would say it's not a reason to ditch ARC. There are a lot of benefits to ARC. So I'm not saying that, but I just thought it was interesting to know about. And then the second one is actually a, an article on The Verge about Siri and um, sort of the history and the development of Siri and, uh, and machine learning and natural language processing that I thought was interesting. Siri is, I, I, I don't know if too many people know, but Siri actually started... Siri was an app that was on the App Store before Apple bought it, and it was a project from the SRI, Stanford Research Institute. And uh, it's it's actually it's it's just really interesting technology and an interesting history of the the company and machine learning and language processing in general. So there you go. Is Siri still in beta? No, it's officially out of beta <laughs> as of well as of tomorrow, iOS seven. Who do the, who do you okay. think they are? Google. <laughs> yeah. Well, when it's they launched years. iOS six, they were like, "Yeah, it's in beta," and well, that's I kind was of fine. unlike. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. It's been a long time, and they it was kind of weird because Apple doesn't really release things that are beta, but uh, Siri they did. Yeah, it's no longer on the web page. No, no word, no yeah. word beta. Maps certainly didn't have the beta moniker at all. <laughs> <laughs> are you implying it should have? Perhaps I don't know. I. I live in Houston, and it was pretty darn accurate here. But I recognized that other places were not so fortunate. Yeah, the the maps on my iPhone have gotten me lost a few times. Ben, what are your picks? Uh, so I have a, a three picks today. One of them, a uh, client came by the office and dropped off a Hue, a package of Hue light bulbs, the Philips Hue that you can they're Wi-Fi enabled, and you can change the color and uh, color temperature, uh, saturation, and brightness. And it's got a programmable API. Uh, so they said, uh, do something cool with it. And so I grabbed the, uh, Hue Gem by Sam Sophus and I had to modify it a little bit to use UPnP's SSDP, simple service device protocol or something like that, uh, in order to discover the bridge IP address, uh, of the unit. But once you do that, you can just, uh, use the command line to set color temperature or whatever. So we hooked this up to our Jenkins build. And, uh, so now we have a, like a deep, rich red lamp when the build is broken which is pretty awesome. Or make uh, it green when Breaking Bad is on or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, we have two others. We're trying to find a cool use for them. But uh, yeah, it's a, they're a little pricey, but uh, but yeah, it was pretty fun. It only took a, an hour or so to get it up and running with a Ruby API, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and then my uh, my last pick is uh, copypastecharacter.com. So if you are looking to paste like the alt symbol on the Mac or the command symbol or some of these other symbols that are not frequently used uh, or, or easily accessible on your keyboard, you can go there and uh, just copy and paste it from that site. Awesome. There's also a, if I can riff mm-hmm. off that a little, there's also a um, kind of cool little uh, web app that was written by Nevin Mergen, who's the designer for Panic called Glyphboard. It's sort of a similar thing. I don't know if it has the the alt symbol, but I, I sort of think it does. But anyway, it's it's meant to be an app that you add to your iOS home screen. So it's one of those um, rare, you know, native-looking web apps for iOS. Yeah, that's that's cool. Nice. Uh, Jane, what are your picks? So my pick today is a lawyer, or lawyers in general. <laughs> I used to be of the opinion that lawyers are like handguns. You don't really need one unless the other guy has one. But I, I found them, if especially if you're an independent developer like me, it's good to have someone on your court and your side that can look over things before you sign them. 
and I'm finding out that they're they can be very valuable and keep you out of a lot, a lot of trouble. So rethink your possible opinion on lawyers. So true. So true. Pete, what are your picks? I have well, I had one pick that someone stole from me. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I won't name names. Uh, so Runscope was going to be one of my picks. Uh, we've already talked about that. Um, I was at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt this uh, last week, and a very cool startup there called. I saw this really cool startup called Estimote. Um, these guys are making these little iBeacon things. Have you guys heard of iBeacon? It's this yes. thing. Low-powered Bluetooth thing that is uh, coming out in iOS 7, and um, I never even heard about it until I saw these guys. But it's a really cool technology. You can get this developer kit from them for 99 bucks, which includes three little Estimote things, which are very—they're made of like soft silicone, so they're very fun to fondle while you're talking to the guys at Estimote at their booth. Little sidebar. Uh, my third pick is a beer pick. I'm going to pick Acme Pale Ale from North Coast Brewing. It is very good. Almost every beer from North Coast Brewing is very good. Um, but the particular one I'm going to pick this week is Acme Pale Ale. Uh, and then my last pick is a game called XCOM Enemy Unknown. If you are... Oh, yes. Yeah. If, you are, if you're my age, then you may have played the original version of this, which came out like 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I think, a long time ago. Someone, they basically remade the game. It's almost the exact same mechanic, the same awesome game, but with awesome graphics using Unreal um, something or other graphics. So it's like awesome 3D graphics, but um, the same original game. So it's like, in my mind, the perfect game remake where you have all of the fun, but it actually is your your kind of hazy memories of what the graphics look like are actually uh, enhanced into like awesome modern graphics hardware so XCOM Enemy Unknown is my last pick. Did you play that you're playing that on the iPad or on the Mac? On the Mac (laughs) I got a a new work laptop so I have like this this tiny little 11 inch MacBook Air which I use for all of my work and no one believes me but I really do and then I got this like big honking MacBook Pro with Retina display and from from my company the only thing I've used it for is playing XCOM (laughs) (laughs) Nice so yeah. I I bought uh, XCOM on the iPad and it's it's nice I like the touch controls but it's not quite as fluid as I would expect an iPad app to be and then the the other thing is it's not very friendly to just like quitting out and doing something else because like you actually have to save your game which I thought was really weird yeah that's weird uh, so I I bought it it was like twenty bucks on the iPad I guess it's the same on on the Mac App Store uh, yeah. or on Steam. Maybe I feel like more, it was I'm more sure. expensive on Steam. But it, was, it is definitely fun to play. I just wish it was more like friendly to the I have to go do something, let me just quit, or multitask or whatever. Anyway. Awesome. Sounds like fun. It is. <laughs> All right, I've got a couple of picks. My first pick is uh, another shameless self-promotion. I'm going to be speaking at RubyConf this year. So if you want to learn uh, learn about some Ruby... And, uh, you know, enjoy some Miami Beach, then uh, go sign up at rubyconf.org. While booking the the trip, I actually was looking at Airbnb, and I found several places that are a whole lot cheaper than the hotel. So I'm going to pick them as well. I've used them once or twice before, and I've always had a good experience with it. So um, Airbnb.com is my second pick. My last pick is um, more along the lines of marketing and business. There's a fellow out there named Michael Hyatt. And uh, he has a podcast called 
This is your life. But he also has a paid membership site called Platform University because he wrote a book called Platform. And so it talks about building your platform and uh, using it to, you know, make sales for your business and things like that. And I highly recommend it. He just raised the price to $30 a month, but it's well worth every penny. And you can get that at platformuniversity.com. Steve, what are your picks? Okay, so I have two picks. Uh, the first one, I'm going to stick with the theme of the show, and it's Little Snitch. Um, little Snitch is a little application that you can install on your Mac that will actually monitor outgoing network connections. Um, and so this is, it's it's kind of got two main uses for me. Uh, the first is that I'm naturally curious, and I like to know what other apps are trying to do on my, my machine behind my back. And so this this actually tells me, and it gives me the option to block or allow connections on an app, app-by-app app basis, and then, you know, to a particular port, to a particular uh, host. Um, and then the other useful uh, that I have for it is that uh, since I also do a lot of Rails backend work, um, it's very handy for actually speeding up integration tests because I can actually block outgoing connections to things like Adobe Typekit or uh, Edge Fonts so that it's not bothering to actually go and pull that data across for a test that you know, it doesn't need to use it. So that's my first one. Uh, my second pick is not computer related and it's uptont.com. So, uh, Upton Tea is a, a tea company and I sort of buck the trend on coffee and nerds because when, uh, when I first started working in the valley about, uh, what is it now? 15 years ago, maybe more. Um, startup companies bought decent coffee, but almost nobody there seemed to know how to make it properly. And uh, I found that loose leaf tea was a much better way of getting my caffeine fixed without having to drink something that was brewed by somebody that didn't know what they were doing. So that, that's my second pick. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Steve. It was uh, a pleasure to have you. And I think don't forget my to... picks. Oh, did I not let you go, Rod? No. Burn. <laughs> <laughs> Rod, what are your picks? All right, my first pick is a talk I ran across on the internet called uh, Closure, Enemy of the State, and it's about how functional programming teaches data, treats data, and, and how it's immutable versus immutable and all that stuff. And it's the first video that kind of let me see how the functional approach to data might be better than the object-oriented approach. So I found it very interesting. And my second pick will be um, myself. I'm looking for full-time work or contract work in Salt Lake or if you're open to remote work anywhere. So that's it. All right. Now we'll wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to show next week.